come before you. Thank you for this day. And thank you for the day we celebrate thankfulness tomorrow and just that you'll be with each of us as we enjoy family and friends and give us a wonderful day to be thankful. We ask you to guide and lead us as we look at your word today in your son's precious name. Amen. Amen. All right, Joshua chapter 10. We're going to be starting at verse 1. And remember, uh, two weeks ago when last we met, <laughs> we talked about uh, the Gibeonites coming to meet with Joshua and the people and tricking them into signing a, an agreement with them because they pretended that they had been tra traveling a long ways. They wore old clothes and took moldy bread and, and old, old saddles for their, for their animals and made it look like they had come from a long, long trip. And instead of going before God and talking to him about what they should do, they just made an agreement with them. And it ended up that they were that uh, Joshua made a curse on them that they were going to be water haulers and wood woodcutters for the rest of their existence with them. So that sets the stage for where we're going into today in chapter 10, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Adonai Zadzi, king of Jerusalem, had heard how Joshua had taken Ai, and had utterly destroyed it as he had done to Jericho and her king, as so he had done to Ai and her king. And now the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, that they feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city as, was, as one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all the men thereof were mighty. Wherefore, Adon Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent unto Horam, king of Hebron, and Piram, king of Jamoth, and also to Japhiah, king of Lachish, and unto Debar, king of Eglon, saying, Come up with me and help me, that we may smite Gibeon, for, that which is, for it is made peace with Joshua and the children of Israel. Wherefore, the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jamath, the king of Lachish, the king of Eglon, gathered themselves together and went up, they and all their host, and encamped before Gibeon and made war against it. All right, so we see here five kings coming against the city of Gibeon. And one thing we want to kind of think of, usually when we think of these places, we think of kings you know, in great big kingdoms. Well, these kings in this day pretty much were kings of one town. All right? They, they didn't usually have multiple towns involved in their kingdoms, unless you were Egypt or later on Babylon or Assyria. So each one of these kings that they come up with are, are one king of one town. So this king is ruling somewhere between 10 to 50,000 people normally. And we, so this tells you what you're looking at. And, you, and who remembers how many people Israel has in their army? About 270,000. You know, 266,868 or something that tells us those numbers. Uh, so we see that they have a very large army and they're taking over this entire area and they made peace with it. And I'm not going to try to read these kings' names again because they're tongue twisters, so I don't mind naming their cities that much. <laughs> but these kings come up. It starts out with the king of Jerusalem. And the king in Jerusalem is just a little bit further away from Ai. If we, let's see if I got my map here. And you all have your maps? Yep. See if I got my map. 
There we go. You've got Jericho on the map just, just to the northwest of the Dead Sea. You've got Ai, which was just to the west of that. And then you've got Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem's not far. Jerusalem is going to be one of the, one of the near ones that would be attacked, and they're, and they're concerned about it. And so he gets together and says, Gibeon has made peace with them. And it says here that, you know, this is kind of interesting in verse 2. And they fared greatly because Gibeon was a great city as one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all the men thereof were mighty. So Gibeon, when they're making this peace treaty with Israel, is not some wimpy little tiny place with no, no army, you know, no people to fight. And yet they make peace with Israel because they are afraid of being beat. And this is going all the way back to when we look at, they get ready to take Jericho. And Rahab says, the people have heard of you and they are afraid of you. They've heard what your God has done into, to Egypt. They've heard what your God has done on the east side of the Jordan and how he's, dry, you know, how he's done all these things, and we are afraid. Now, it's kind of fun to be able to fight an enemy where their enemy is afraid. <laughs> it makes the battle a lot easier because they're going to be more likely to take off. And so these five kings decide that they are going to come together to fight against Gibeon. And so we see this up there, and they're going, they, they want to smite it. Why? Because Gibeon broke ranks, basically. <laughs> they made peace with Israel. Uh, they're, they're decided they're not going to go to battle. They're not going to stand up and defend themselves, and they've just, they've rolled over. And that's the last thing these kings want, because it's going to discourage their people. That, oh, another group of the, you know, they've already destroyed two cities, one of, our, one of our cities, or one of the big cities with lots of strong people, have quit. Now you can imagine what that will do to the morale of your people when you're saying all these cities are being destroyed. And uh, so this sets the stage for where we're at. Verse 6, And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua to the camp of, to Gilgal, saying, Slack not your hand from your servants. Come to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that dwell in the mountains are gathered together among, against us. So Joshua ascended from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said unto Joshua, Fear them not, for I have delivered them into your hand. There shall not a man of them stand before you. Joshua therefore came unto them suddenly and went up from Gilgal all night. And the Lord discomforted them before Israel and slew them with a great slaughter at Gibeon and chased them along the way in, that goes to Beth-Horon Beth and smote them to Azekah and into Mechgedah. And it came to pass as they fled from before Israel and they were going down into Beth-Horon that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven upon them, Azekah, and they died and and, were, and they were more which died of the hailstones than, than they whom the children of Israel slew with the sword. So the people of Gibeon decide, we're going to call our new ally for help. Uh, we saw, you could have saw this coming from the very beginning. This, they, they made this peace treaty. You could almost see that this was going to happen. And the very first thing that they get into trouble and they call help. 
And that's basically what happens even in our day when there's allies gathered together and somebody attacks an ally, everybody joins into the defense. That's how World War I and World War II both started. You know, we had an attack the, on, a, on a small country. They called for their allies, and then everybody from the other side joined in on the battles, and you had this huge war. This is what you're seeing here. Gibeon's going, come and help us. We, we need your, your 280,000 men coming here. Come, come and help us because we've got five kings coming against us, which is not a shabby army. Even if there's only 10,000 people in each of these armies, it's still a pretty good-sized army that's coming against this one city. And their goal is to dissuade. And it says, Joshua ascended, and he and all the people of war with him and the mighty men of valor. So he takes all the warriors. So he's taken the entire 280, you know, almost 270,000 men to battle. And we don't really think about this. That's a huge army. It really is a very large army to take. Even, even in our day, an army of 270,000 people would be a good-sized army for any one battle. You know, usually we don't throw all of our forces in at one battle. So there's, even though we have larger army, we don't usually send that many all at one time. We send a couple divisions in, you know, a couple thousand, you know, you know, 20, 30,000 people at one, any one time, but not usually. Yes. Yeah. Well, war, war, war is a pretty big deal. And um, so we see here, Joshua ascends up. So he's going uphill from where he's at. And remember, they're down here by, by the Jordan River. So almost anything is uphill from where they're going. And he, he basically force marches them. He's going to get there in one night. And remember when we talked about two weeks ago, Gil, Gibeon's approximately two to three days away. So he's really moving these people fast to get into this battle, this battle zone. And he's honoring, honoring their deal. They agreed to alliance with them. And I'm sure when they made the alliance, they're thinking, okay, we'll call you. You won't be calling us. And the very first thing that's happened is they're being called into battle. In verse 8, it says, The Lord said to Joshua, Fear them not, for I have delivered them into your hand, and there shall not a man stand before you. Now, how about that for a promise? You go to battle, and it goes, the, enemy's gonna, the enemy won't be able to stand in front of you. They're going to they're gonna, they're gonna surrender. Why? Mostly because they're scared to death of Israel. Is the, the reputation of God has gone through this land. And, you've, and we've talked about this many times. Just what God did to Egypt to get them out of the land of Egypt was a big deal. Egypt was an empire that reigned over that whole area, and God destroys it economically and basically wipes out their army in the Red Sea. As when, you, when Pharaoh chased them into the Red Sea, he sent his army ahead of them, and God closed the Red Sea on his army. So Pharaoh's... The 10 plagues wiped out their economy, wiped out their morale, and then the Red Sea wipes out their army. So Egypt is left devastated. And here they're looking at it going, we know what your God has done, how he defeated Egypt. That's a big deal was to have your, your enemy afraid of you, deadly afraid of you. And God says, they're not going to stand in front of you. you know, there's five kings there, but they're not going to stand. And what a promise. 
And, you know, spiritually, we have that same promise. Satan cannot stand against us. It's Satan has to ask God for permission to do anything to us. And it's not usually him who does anything to us anyway, but, you know, he still has to ask for permission to be able to send his forces against us. And God says, There hath no temptation overtaken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able, but will with the temptation provide a way of escape. So we're, he gives us all that we need to be successful and victorious. Just as he's telling Israel here, you're going to be victorious. It'd be wonderful to go into battle knowing you're victorious before you even get there. And they are told you're going to be victorious. It's interesting to me that Joshua didn't go before the Lord and pray for success this time. Yeah. That's true. He didn't, it doesn't say that Joshua even asked at this point. It says the Lord said you're going to have this. In this case, he's being true to his word. They made an agreement with the Gibeonites, so they really have no choice but to go help them if they're going to be an honest people. And God just tells them, by the way, I'm going to, you're going to be victorious. But you are right. He didn't, it doesn't tell us that he's asking for victory. It doesn't even tell us that he asked to go. Especially when he had so much trouble a couple times before, or at least the last time. Joshua, for all of his success as a leader and a godly man that he is, is a great example to us because he keeps forgetting to bring God in the midst of each situation. Okay? He prayed for Jericho because he didn't have anything. You know, He didn't even trust himself. He didn't pray for the first battle of Ai. And it doesn't appear that he prayed for the second battle of Ai, but God told him what to do for the second battle of Ai. And here against the five kings, it doesn't appear anywhere in the scripture that he even asked, shall we go? He's being a man of integrity. We made our word. We agreed to help Gibeon. We're going to go help Gibeon. And then God steps in and says, oh, and by the way, I'm going to bless this. I'm going to bless you against these five people, and you're going to win. You know, but isn't that very much the way we live as Christians so often? God, I'm going to do something. Oh, God, maybe you might want to bless this for me. <laughs> you know, or hope, hope that God blesses it. <laughs> Or hope that it's not an AI and we get our butt kicked, uh, you know, all the way back to our, where we started from. That's what I'd be of. <laughs> and we need to be very careful in our day-to-day -day life to bring God in the midst of our decision-making. And say, God, should I do this? God, if this is not what you want me to do, please stop. You know, close the doors. Don't let it happen. But bring God into the mix of what's going on. Because too many times we make decisions without thinking about God at all. You know, and sometimes we make major decisions without bringing God into the, de the decision making at all. A young person getting married doesn't bring God into the decision at all. They just think, you know, God, I'm infatuated with this person. I think I love them and I'm going to get married. And never ask God. God, should I move here? Should I do this? What should I do? You know, uh, when I was trying to decide what to do after high school, I knew what God wanted me to do, and I applied to three other schools other than the one God wanted me to go to and got admitted to every one of them. I could have said, well, God, did you open all the doors. I, I should go to one of these other schools. <laughs> that wasn't, that was, I knew where he wanted me to go. And the test was, are you going to go to these other places? And we need to be very careful of bringing God in the midst of decisions. Because it is so important, because Willie can really mess up our life. I've made many decisions that I didn't bring God into the, the mix of and ended up suffering. And because I was married, my kids suffered and my wife suffered. Because I made decisions that I didn't bring God into the mix of. 
So I'm trying to learn, bring God into the mix of these decisions. God, I, I think I want to do this. Would you close these doors or give me peace or whatever it might be? But lift up and ask him to be part of the decisions you make. And it's anything, especially even any big decision, especially. But, you know, God wants a part of every bit of our life. And remember that even when you make a wrong decision, he's, you tell him, God, I'm sorry I didn't bring you in this and ask for forgiveness and he'll forgive it. And there's sometimes consequences for that decision. Wow. So often we make decisions because we're emotionally involved in the decision and don't bring God into the decision. And that's when we can get ourselves into trouble. And that's why most people get married without bringing God into the, into the decision-making process because they go, well, I am just emotionally involved in this situation. I'm getting married. Uh, I am emotionally involved in this job. It's the perfect job. It's the one that I really want. I got to take this. Always remember, whenever I say something that you haven't followed, remember that God still forgives and gives grace in those areas. Just try to go better in the future. <laughs> Yeah. And we all, we all do it all the time. We get emotionally involved. You know, I have to have this, so I'm going to go do it. And the next thing, you know, after the fact, we go, God, was that the right decision? Yeah. It's a little late once you've made the decision to try to bring God into the decision. And usually what ends up happening is all these bad things are happening to us. And God, was that really a good decision? Maybe God, why didn't you stop me? Well, you never invited me into the decision-making process. Here we see Joshua, though, so many times forgetting to bring God into the, bring it into, and, it, and God shows his grace, graciousness to him because he keeps giving Joshua what he needs to be a good leader, even when he's forgetting to bring God in. Now he is operating on the principle of God saying the land is yours, the territory is yours. So the promise is that the land is his, or the Israel's. Uh, Oftentimes, he's going into a very presumptuous thing and just doing things. And that's something we do so often. We presume upon God and just go and do things. Just go and do things and say, God, you're going to bless this because, well, you've promised. That you. uh, we see a lot of that when people say, well, God, I'm, uh, you've promised good. Well, what, you have to define good. Now, most people, when they think good, they're thinking lots of money, lots of possessions. And God's def definition of good is not necessarily possessions and goods. And money, his dis, you know, he's going to give us what we need, and we're going to prosper, and we should be content with that. And But Joshua now has a promise, I'm going with you. I'm going with you, and you are going to, they're not going to be able to stand. And it says, Joshua therefore came unto them suddenly and went up from Gilgal all night. So they basically marched the people overnight to get to this, get to Gibeon. And it says, And the Lord discomforted them before Israel and slew them with a great slaughter of Gibeon and chased them along the way that goes to Beth Horan and smote them to Azzegah and to Mechledah. So they're chasing these people. They are running away. <laughs> and it says, The Lord discomforted them, took them right out of their safe spots, moved them, moved them away, and Israel chases them. Now, these little towns do not show up on my map that I gave you there. Uh, number one, this is a map of Israel and not a map of, of, uh, of uh, the Amorites. But they're chasing them away. And it says, God gave them a great slaughter. Everywhere they're going, they're killing people, and the people are running from them. Fun battle. When the enemy's running away from you, the battle's easy. <laughs> 
the battle is easy. And remember, Satan is running, will run away from us when we stand against him in the armor of God because he cannot defeat God. So he will leave. And then we see a very interesting statement in verse 11. And it came to pass as they fled before Israel and they were going down to Beth Horam that the Lord cast down great stones from heaven and upon them unto Azgah, and they died. And they were more which died to the hailstones than they which the children of Israel slew with the sword. Now God literally is fighting in this battle for Israel. Because he says he cast down great hailstones. And I don't know how big a great hailstone is. The commentaries will tell us they were like 200 pounds, and I don't know where they come up with that. Uh, but these are not little tiny hailstones. <laughs> okay? But even a softball or grapefruit size would, would do, you know, catching people out in the field would kill people. And I had a feeling they were closer to, you know, watermelon or soccer ball because God calls them great hailstones. You know, and they're killing people and not killing the Israelites. All right. So God's, God had already told him. Remember, if you think back quite a few chapters ago, God has already told him that he was going to drive the people out. He was going to kill them. Here's the first, you know, the first example was him taking down the walls of Jericho. That's a big deal. These thick, heavy walls being torn down by God. Then now we see in God send hailstorms into the battle. And we're going to see other places where he sends hornets <laughs> after the people. You know, this is God fighting for his people and driving the enemy out. And you know, we've, can you picture this? You're, you're chasing the enemy and all of a sudden hailstones are falling from the sky, great big hailstones falling from the sky, killing your enemy for you. Number one, you might be afraid. <laughs> but at the same time, you're going, our God is working for us. Now remember, this is a group of people that have heard the stories of the 10 plagues. They've heard the stories of the crossing of the Red Sea. They've seen some victories in battle, but nothing miraculous in the battle. Now they have seen the miraculous feeding of the, of the manna that stopped when they came into the Promised Land, because remember, the day they ate of the produce of the Promised Land, the manna stopped. They've been watching the, rock, the water flow from the rock. And here they are, though, but they're finally seeing the miracles of God on a daily basis. And this is something, I hear it all the time from people, and I've read it many times, you know, and we've even seen it here. Where is the God that produces miracles? You know, we still serve a God who does miracles. I've seen lots of miracles in my life. Nothing quite as, as great as him destroying the enemy with great big hailstones or yeah. splitting the rivers. But I've seen healings. I've seen very interesting uh, events that have, you know, people getting money just at the last moment when they needed it in a way that made no sense whatsoever. And, and people being healed and God doing great things. God still does miracles if we're looking for them. Now, if we're looking for hailstones falling from the skies to destroy our enemies, we're probably not going to see those, but we could. God's still capable of it. If we needed to cross a, cross a river and didn't have a, a boat or a, or a bridge nearby, God would, could part the water. Uh, in our day, in our, in our country, we probably don't need to part too many rivers. There's plenty of bridges. 
uh, to cross, the, <laughs> cross most rivers that we have to cross. But God still does miracles, which is also why I recommend that we read these biographies and get to see what God has done in recent years with the miracles. Our God is a miracle-working God and will do things if we're looking for them. But here, the children of Israel, even when, when they first started coming in, they're going, God, where are you? You haven't done the things. We've, we've heard about what you've done in the past, but we haven't seen it. And now he's starting to show them, I'm still the, I'm still the same God. And, I, and I, just, I think this would be an amazing thing just to see these hailstones falling down from the sky on, and hitting the enemy. <laughs> you know, uh, and I think God's precision with the hailstones was probably pretty good, too. <laughs> uh, they probably hit more people than missed. <laughs> But we see this battle. Verse 12. Then spoke Moses, uh, Moses, yeah. Then spoke Joshua to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the children of Israel. And he said in, in the sight of Israel, Sun, stand you still upon Gibeon, and you, moon, in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stayed and, until the people had avenged themselves upon their enemies. Is not this written in the book of Yasser? So the sun stood in the midst of the heaven and hastened not to go down for a whole day. And there was no day like that before it or after it. And the Lord hearkened unto the voice of the man, and for the Lord fought for Israel. You've got to imagine, this is a, this, it, we think the hailstone was a miracle. Here's a miracle. They're in battle. Joshua saying, God... The sun's setting, and they're going to get away. They're going to get away at night. And basically, he just commands the sun to stand still and the moon to stand still. And miraculously, it does for a whole day. And can you imagine this? Imagine the day these poor Israelite armies had. They've been on a forced march all night. They get into a battle. They fight all day. And then Joshua has the sun and moon stand still, ask God to have the sun and the moon stand still, so they fight for another full day. All right, these guys are on their feet for 24 hour, uh, 48 hours in, in battle, or marching to battle and, and chasing the enemy. This, you know, does anybody else see another miracle that's probably happened in this one? Not just the sun standing still and the hailstone. Is there another miracle you might see in this? The moon, the moon is standing still. But think, these guys are busy fighting for 48 hours. Has God given them supernatural strength just to fight? Yeah. Okay. They did a forced march that should have tired them out. Then they fight for a whole day of sunlight. Then they get to fight another 24 hours. There's a miracle that doesn't even get mentioned often. These guys have enough strength to fight for 48 hours? God has created a miracle just in that. And this points out the little miracles that we don't usually think about. Uh, the story of Jesus healing the blind man, and he says, what do you see? And he, sees, he says, I see men as trees walking. Now, do you realize that when people were healed of their blindness, how many miracles actually happened? They were given sight, but they also had to be able to interpret what they saw. Mm -hmm. Okay, Because when you open your eyes, you have to learn what you see. Just like if you get a brand new pair of glasses and all of a sudden you can see things. Uh, uh, I got my glasses when I was 12 years old and I asked them what the funny lines across the TV were and everybody laughed at me because there were herring bones that used to be part of the broadcast TV. You know, little squiggly lines that were on all the channels no matter how good a reception you had. 
I had never seen them in my life. You know, and so the miracles when he heals people of their sight, being able to see. They heal somebody to be of their lameness. You know, anybody who's raised a kid knows how hard it is to teach that kid to walk. How much harder is it going to be teach an adult to walk if they had to learn? And yet God strengthens their ankles and they were often running and walking and, and jumping up and down. There was a period of time where I had so many gout attacks that I hated going up and down steps. And still to this day, if you watch me, it's usually step, bring the other foot to the same step. <laughs> I, I don't feel comfortable trying to walk down steps the way we learn to walk down steps, you know, skipping the step with your other foot because I've just lost that <laughs> ability because I was not able to walk for so long hardly with my gout. You know, how does the little miracles that God does for us so very interesting. How many people, when they get saved, give up some sin, say alcohol or drugs, and all of a sudden it's just gone? Some people have to struggle with it. Others get a miraculous gift of healing over it. You know, God taking away huge sins in our life, just overnight, just taking them away. Changing the way we think. Have you thought about the way you think, how it's probably hopefully changed over the years as you, as you follow God and study the Word? that you don't think the same way you did in the past as a, as a lost person. You don't do the same things. You, you, you're more truthful, you're more loving, and you're more honest, hopefully. <laughs> you're, you're, you're not as easily angered, hopefully. But those things can be a huge blessing from God as he takes them away in just little miracles. <laughs> and then we look at uh, God, what have you done? I hope nobody ever asks, God, what have you done for me? <laughs> I can, I can think back at all the things God's done for me, and I can't even name all the things that God has done for me. Even, in, even over the last month, all the things that God has done for me. Not even considering all of my Christian walk to watch what he's done. And here he is with the children of Israel saying, okay, God, Joshua, you're going to be successful. Joshua, your people are going to win. Oh, by the way, I'll just kill, I'll kill the majority of them with the hailstones. And Joshua, oh, you want more time, Joshua? No problem. We give you more time. Now, can you imagine, though, if, the, if they had a full day, what it must have been like here in America? They would have had a full, a full two nights. Because if the sun stopped, it's, got a, it's dark on the other side of the country. That mean, but how did God have to do this? He had to stop the world from rotating. Think about the power of our God. <laughs> to be able to stop the world from rotating for 24 hours. And then put it back on on its normal rotation. Have you thought about this? You know, do you think about the power of our God? This has great implications. I mean, scientists don't like this miracle at all because, this, and because it can't be explained. And if the world stops spinning, they can't figure out how it would start spinning again. Well, God is very powerful. He can do what he wants. Oh, it's not a problem. But this is definitely something you cannot come up with a scientific reason for. To have the world stop spinning for 24 hours and then continue back on its merry way is, is no, there is no scientific reason. I mean, sometimes they'll say, well, uh, a volcano over here caused dust to fall down and caused darkness. I mean, they'll give you all kinds of crazy reasons for the 10 plagues and everything. But this is something that God did that there is no scientific reason for the world to stop spinning 
and then start spinning again. Um, I'm not sure what it, I'm not sure what all the what all that's about. But even in our day, in our scientific day, people freak out about the eclipse. You know that we just had recently. They freak out about an eclipse. It's just a natural phenomenon, and I don't know what their problem is. <laughs> but it, it, maybe there is some some uh, primal <laughs> idea that maybe it's not coming back. I don't know. Yeah, it would have to have been. Uh, eclipses are only a couple minutes, but you know, but just think because you know I don't know if most people think about that, but if it was light on that side, then it had to be dark someplace else. And it says the sun and the moon stood still, so it wasn't like God said, "Okay, let me just give you a spotlight over you," and it continued continued to be bright daylight there, which he could have done that too, but it says the sun and the moon stood still for a day. Which is, means the earth stopped spinning. That or God gave him great illusions, but I don't think that's what he did. I think he stopped it from spinning. <laughs> but, and it says there's never been a day like it since. Now, this is nothing that can be proven about this at all. There's no way they can go prove it. But you know, somewhere in my vague remember, remembrance, I remember some Indian legend of a day, a day that the sun didn't rise. <laughs> You know, so it would be fun to read these kind of things to see, you know, in history, was there a day the sun didn't rise on the on Native Americans or Southern American uh, people? And it would be fun to see that there was a day that the sun didn't rise because I'm sure there was one. Because <laughs> the sun didn't set over there, it didn't rise over here. Uh, or in the Pacific, I'm not quite sure exactly where the opposite side is because I don't have a globe, but... I know we're pretty close to the opposite side, so we should have, have had twilight at the very, very least for a day. But you know, the miracles. God's doing miracles. And you know, this is helping Joshua look really big in the, in the eyes of the people. You know, how powerful is our leader? Well, he told the sun to stand still, and it stood still. They forget that it's God, but the people are going to look at Joshua and say, he's the one that did it. What have they been doing the whole time Moses is leading? Uh, you brought us out here. You did all these things. You've been giving us water. You've been giving us manna. You, you, know, you brought us out. You know, they always pointed to Moses, and Moses always pointed to God. No, it's God. And here the, the people are going to look at, Moses, at Joshua and say, wow, this guy's pretty strong. You know, look how much power he has. He can stop the sun and the moon. Now, can you imagine how freaked out the rest of the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Pezites and all these other Jebusites and all these guys are? You know, the sun stood still for a full day so that they could win the battle. <laughs> they, weren't, they weren't already freaked out. They weren't already worried. The, the God has destroyed Egypt with the plagues. He crossed the Red Sea by splitting it. He crossed the the Jordan River by splitting the Jordan River. He tore down the wall. Their, their God tore down the walls of Jericho. Now he's sending hail and, and hailstones in and, and uh, 48-hour days. <laughs> Imagine if you're the enemy. <laughs> you know, uh, our God's never so much to said boo to us, and this God is tearing, tearing everything down and, and killing and, and commanding nature. You know, we, we haven't seen much, much out of our God's and there's going to be concern. They're going to be concerned. They're going to be even more afraid than they have been before this. Verse 15. 
And Joshua returned, and all Israel came with him unto the camp at Gilgal. But those, these five kings fled and hid themselves in a cave at Mechkedah. And it was told Joshua, saying, The five kings are found hidden in a cave at Mechkedah. And Joshua said, Roll great stones upon the mouth of the cave, and set men by it to keep them. And stay you not, but pursue after your enemies, and smite them, the hindmost of them, and suffer them not to enter into their cities, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. And it came to pass, when Joshua and the children of Israel had made an end of the slain, with a very great slaughter, till they were consumed, that the rest had, which remained had entered into defense cities, and all the people returned to the camp of Joshua to, at Mechgadah in peace. None moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Then said Joshua, Open the mouth of the cave, and bring out those five kings unto me out of the cave. And they did so, and brought forth those five kings unto him out of the cave, and the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmoth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And it came to pass, when they came out, those kings unto Joshua, that Joshua called for all the men of Israel, and said unto the captains of the men of war, which went with him, Come near, and put your feet upon the necks of these kings. And they came near and put their feet on the neck of, the king, of, of them. And Joshua said unto them, Fear not, nor dismay. Be strong and of good courage, for thus saith the Lord God, do to all, thus shall the Lord God do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And afterwards Joshua smote them and slew them and hung them on five trees, and they were hanging upon the trees until evening. And it came to pass at the time of the going down of the sun that Je Joshua commanded. And that they took them down off the trees and cast them into the cave wherein they had been hid and laid their great stones in the ca cave's mouth and remained, and which remain until this very day. So here we see these kings running away and, and the five kings decided to hide. And they hid in a cave. And somehow Joshua was told that they were in this cave. And this is, this is kind of backtracking, if, if, you're, if you're used to some stories, sometimes you, you go forward in a story, then you kind of go back and pick up some, some information, and then you come back. Uh, Genesis did that same thing. If, if you, or nobody was, very few of you were here in Genesis when we did. But in Genesis, we get the story of Abraham, and the story of Abraham is told all the way till when he dies. Then they start with Isaac, and they jump back to the middle of Abraham's life, <laughs> tell Isaac's story until he dies. Then they when he dies, they go to Jacob's life and they jump back to the middle of Isaac's life over and overlap Abraham's life to tell you Jacob's life. Now, most people, when they read it, don't realize that that's what's happening. They, they think these guys don't overlap, and I've shown you guys the, the graph of the patriarchs where they overlap in a big way, so you should know that these guys overlap. So we read the story and go, okay, Abraham, we're done with Abraham, we go to Isaac, okay, Isaac dies, we go to Jacob, and there's a huge overlap of those lives that you don't see reading the book until you start looking at the dates and going, oh, uh, Jacob's still alive when, when Abraham's alive, so now we're starting the story of Jacob, so we, you know, Abraham's still alive. And we, we lose that continuity in the story because of the way they teach, the way that it's being taught or told. And here we have the same thing going on because we're going to see them going back into battle and we know the battle's done because of the 48 hours of battle. But somewhere in the middle of the battle, Joshua finds out that the kings are hiding in this cave. Does that make sense to everybody? We're not, not losing you? It's a storytelling technique that happens a lot. You, you, tell, you finish out one part of your story and then you kind of go back and overlap it 
and it happens a lot of times sometimes in movies where you flip back and forth between scenes, but you're, you're going backwards in time when you flip, flip scenes a lot of times, and that's what's happening here. Well, I've read uh, several secular uh, authors' books have used that same technique. Happens all the time. Kind of hard to follow sometimes until you get caught on to it. Yeah, when you don't realize it's happening, you kind of get lost, like, hold it, the battle's over. What, what are, you know, why are we you know, doing something in the middle of the battle, and why, why are they going back into battle? And you kind of lose track. You're right. And so you got to keep in mind, this is a literary technique that happens a lot, not just in the Bible. Secular books, movies, all kinds of entertainment use this little backtracking scheme because you got too many stories going on. If you try to tell both stories at the same time, you'd really get confused. You know, let me bounce you here and old okay, by the same moment this is happening, and then this is, you know, you'd be, you'd be more confused by bouncing back and forth all the way. And sometimes I've seen a movie that's tried doing that. You know, not very often, but they'll bounce back and forth between the two scenes, and it's like, okay, I'm getting dizzy here. <laughs> and so this is what we're seeing here. Uh, these five kings are hiding in the cave, and Joshua finds out, so he says, okay, Put a great big stone in front of, you know, put some big stones in front of the caves, and we're going to start station guards out here. Now, luckily, there was no second entrance to the cave somewhere else, but <laughs> otherwise they would have escaped. But they, they, so they put a, stones in front of it, and they put guards in front of it. And then he says, the rest of you don't stay here. Get, get back to battle. It's more important to kill the enemy and keep them from going to their cities than to stand here and get these kings. And so he put the guard there. And it says, uh, verse 20, And it came to pass when Joshua and the children of Israel had made an end of the slain with a very great slaughter till they consumed that the rest of which remained had entered into fenced cities. So these guys finally made it into some cities. And because you can only chase your enemies so long. And the whole idea was to keep them in a fenced city means a walled city, in case you don't know that term. It's, uh, and most cities in that day and age had a wall. What did you need a wall for? To keep the enemy out. You'd go through the, the main gate, you'd close the gate, and you'd only have to guard a gate. You didn't have to cover the entire perimeter of the city. Uh, even as small as, as chloride is, imagine trying to guard all mile square of the, of the town. It would be pretty tough to be everywhere around the town at one time and not be able to go in and out. Well, these cities were a little bit bigger than, than chloride in most cases. And they built a huge wall around it with only one or two gates in, the, in these walls. Some of, the, some of these walls were huge. Some were just enough to make life difficult. And Jericho had a huge wall. It said that you could ride the chariot around their wall. So that was a big wall. Most of these cities just have little, little walls, just enough to slow down the enemy and be able to, to come and, and protect it. After they after all after they chased these people and the people got into the into the walled cities, the people returned back to camp. Okay, Joshua, we've chased them to they've gone into the cities. We can't go after them anymore because we aren't we aren't prepared to fight and take cities. And because you got to think, you know, in our day and age, a walled city is not that would not be that big a deal, but it would still take some effort to even blow apart some of these walls. Now, we, our armies have weapons that could blow the walls apart in no time flat. But you'd still have to move the artillery to the right place or the bombers to the right place. You wouldn't have been able to chase your enemy and then just knock the wall down. You'd have had to move machinery of some sort. Even in our day, you'd have to move machinery of some sort uh, 
to attack the wall. Uh, even if you fired missiles from some distance, you're, you're, you're still taking time to make that happen. So they get to the cities and they're safe for all practical purposes for the time being. And they come back and Joshua says, open up the cave. We're done fighting, I'll bring those kings out. And, and this is important. You see this happening all through scripture. You see it all through history too if you read the history. When the battle is over, the kings are taken out and usually killed. You know, the kings really would prefer to have died in battle than to be slaughtered the way they're going to be slaughtered. To be, to be executed is a lot uh, less noble <laughs> than to die in battle. And they're going to be killed execution, basically. And humiliated. These guys are going to be humiliated, and that's not uncommon either. Remember when from Ezekiel we were talking about Jehoiakim. <laughs> he was captured by, for rebelling against Nebuchadnezzar, and Nebuchadnezzar killed his children and then put out his eyes and then drug him to Babylon, made him walk and drug him to Babylon. Okay? And the prophecy to him was that you're, you're going to Babylon and you will never see it. And everybody's going, how can you go to Babylon and never see it? Well, <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar took care of it. He never saw Babylon. He lived in Babylon for the rest of his life and never saw it. And, you know, God is that way. He'll say something in the scriptures that makes no sense to us until after it's happened. And we go, oh, that's how you did it. How could Jesus be a, from born in Bethlehem and be considered a Nazarite? and not a Nazarene. Don't get those two terms mixed up. He's a, Nazar he, a Nazarene, excuse me, not a Nazarite. Because uh, a Nazarene is that vow of, of, of not cutting your hair and not touching dead animals. But he was from, he grew up in Nazareth and was considered a Nazarite, a Nazarene. <laughs> I'll give it, I'm, I'm going to confuse myself. But he was born in Bethlehem. And for, for years, they would look at the scriptures and say, well, how can both of those be true? Well, God's got a way of making things happen. And how will he make everything happen in the, in, in that's yet to come? Some of it we don't understand. You know, having the entire world against Israel doesn't make a whole lot of sense, especially when he's got powerful allies right now, but we're starting to see that slip away. Having a 200 million man army come against Israel. You know, we can have that big an army, but that's a big army. You don't give that much uh, resources to one battle in, usually. And yet God says it's going to happen and we can see that it could happen. There's enough military now to do that large an army. Pretty much just China alone can do it. Much, much less the rest of, rest of the world. And so we see this uh, activity. He says, open the kings and they did so and they took those five kings out and Joshua and they were brought before Joshua and Joshua called the leaders together and the people together. And he says, come near and put your feet on the necks of these kings. And they came near and they put their feet on the necks of the king. This is a place of, they are under submission. They're under your foot. All right? And it wasn't an idea of come stand on their, come stand on their neck, but it was to put your foot on and say, you've been humbled, you have been defeated. And even if they had let them go, that was enough to have, to have made them you know, feel bad about it because they've been humbled. They've been made to lay on the ground as a king. Now, 
We don't know much about kings, but if you've ever watched any medieval story, any story that has a king, a king would not lay down on the ground uh, of his own will. All right? And would not let somebody put their foot on their neck unless they were being forced to. And here they're being forced to. They probably have spears on them saying, you're not moving. Okay? Doesn't say that, but you can picture. These guys aren't laying down voluntarily. They didn't just say, Joshua didn't say, okay, lay down. We're going to put our foot on your neck. They had been forced on the ground, and they had been forced to stay where they're at. Quite possibly tied. So they could not get up. And Joshua said to the people, fear not, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, for thus, saith the, for thus shall the Lord God do to all your enemies against whom you fight. And this, frame sh- this phrase should stand out, be strong and of good courage. That's what Joshua was told by God at the very beginning, be strong and of good courage. And we saw it like four times in the first couple chapters. This is the theme of Joshua. Be strong and of good courage. And this is the the theme for us as Christians. Be strong and of good courage. God has defeated our enemies. We should not be afraid of anything out there in the spiritual realm or even in the physical realm because God is in control. Be strong and of good courage. And this is God's command for all of us, that we should be ready to go to battle, to go to war for God. And so much has happened over the years that Christianity has really become pretty wimpy overall. You know, you think about it, there's not a whole lot of strong stuff going on in Christianity. And if you picture Jesus, you know, the new picture of Jesus is this wimpy guy. Jesus was a carpenter. And that wasn't a carpenter like today's carpenter. To be a carpenter in that day, you had to go to the forest, cut down the tree, plane the tree into the boards you wanted to use, and then use the wood. So you had to have strength, you had to have power, and everything was done by hand. No power tools in those days. Everything was done by hand. He had to have been strong. And who does he bring for disciples? Well, a bunch of them are fishermen. Fishermen did not have winches and, and electric winches to pick up the nets that they lowered. They had to drag them up by hand. These guys were not wimpy sissies. They were strong men. And God used them to change the world. And they faced virtually certain death because every disciple except for John the Baptist died as a martyr. And in John's case, it wasn't for lack of trying. They tried to boil him in oil. They tried to poison him. They sent him to, to a criminally insane and a lunatic, lunatic asylum to hope that he would die there, and he didn't die there. It wasn't that they didn't try to kill him. It just God wouldn't let him die. They finally sent him back to Ephesus where he died an old man. But all the rest of them died horrible deaths, beheadings, uh, drawn and quartered, literally quartered by animals. They put an animal on all four of his limbs and pulled him, in, pulled him into four pieces. Uh, Peter crucified, according to tradition, upside down. I don't know that that actually happened because I can't picture somebody being crucified upside down, that the anatomy wouldn't hold up, but tradition says that he asked for it. Uh, I don't know that it was granted. I won't go that way because it's no proof to it. 
uh, Thomas's was run through with lances in, in uh, India. All these guys died horrible deaths because they dared to proclaim the gospel of Christ. Christianity is not for wimps. It really isn't. And yet sometimes we act like we're defeated and have no power. And God says, be strong and of good courage. And then it says in verse 26, And afterward Joshua smote them and slew them and hung them on five trees. And they were hanging there until the evening. And why did they take them down at evening? Does anybody remember from our Deuteronomy study? No, in Deuteronomy 21, it says you are not to leave anybody hanging past sunset. So they took them down following the law. They hung them, they they killed them, they executed them, they hung them on the tree to further humiliate them and demonstrate that they had been defeated. But then they took them off the tree and put them in their grave. Same reason when Jesus was crucified going into Passover, the Jews really wanted the crosses empty for Passover. They, you know, they couldn't make them take them off normally because it usually took three or four days to up to three weeks to die of crucifixion. Now, crucifixion was a horrible death, and it was a long, slow death usually. And for Jesus to be dead after just three hours was an amazing thing to the, to the Romans, that he died that quick. But he died because of the sins of the world being put on him. So this is why they take him off the tree. They, they hang him up on the, they kill him, they hang him up on the tree, and they take him down at sun, before sunset and bury them properly. Because that's what God said. You do not hang somebody on a tree past, past sunset. Did everyone observe that, uh, not just the Israelites, uh, doing it because it was the law, Deuteronomy, but even non-believers? No, usually they would keep you up. They would hang people because they wanted to really embarrass The whole reason of being hung on a tree was to embarrass them and say that this person is too weak to have succeeded. Okay, they may have not done it, but everyone that Israel conquered... Israel was supposed to have always done it. Now, one thing we know about Israel, we know what their laws say, but they did not always follow their laws very well. Because remember, when Joshua first comes in, they celebrate Passover, and it's the first time they've celebrated Passover in 40 years, and God said, you would celebrate Passover every year. Uh, they didn't circumcise their, their children in the wilderness, and yet, you know, they were told to. Yeah. Ideally, you wanted to leave them up. You left them up. When, when, Saul, when King Saul was killed, his enemies hung his body up on, and his son's bodies up outside the wall, and they left them there all night. And the, uh, I can't remember which group, but one of the groups came in and took the bodies and buried them. And David praised them for taking the bodies down and, and honoring them. But they were going to leave them up till they rotted and and weren't because they wanted to show that they had killed the king of yeah. king of Israel. And that was the usual process. But God says, no, you don't. Don't hang somebody that you know overnight, and because he wanted the land to be pure, he didn't want this you know this kind of intimidation. Because what's that? What is that saying when you leave him up you know for a long period of time? Look what I have done. And God said, No, it's not going to be what you have done. It's what I have done, and I don't need a a week or, or long putting the body on display to show how great I am. So you're going to take these down. 
right away. And it has a big impact on the spiritual side of things for, for this. And then they buried them in the same cave that they had hid in, and they put stones in front of them. And then it says, there they are to this day. And I don't know if they're still there to this day. But uh, as of the time of the writing of Joshua, they were still there uh, in, the, in that grave. All right, we're going to close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We ask you to give us a wonderful day tomorrow and, and bring everybody together again on Saturday and Sunday for more study. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.